But first, let's talk about the city of Vancouver and it deciding to back away from its living wage policy, a policy that's been in place since 2017. Today, that living wage stands at just over 24 bucks an hour. But behind closed doors, way back earlier this year, council decided to kind of revisit the way the wage down at that level is actually calculated. Not everybody is happy about this move away from that. One of those people speaking out right now is Christine Boyle, Vancouver City Councillor, and she joins us now. Thanks so much for spending time with us, Christine. Thanks for having me on. Let's go back uh, into a little bit of history for the uninitiated. Uh, 2017, there was a recognized need to uh, come up with a wage, right, for uh, basically not being wealthy, but getting by in Vancouver. Tell me about the impetus for that. Sure. There was actually um, many years of advocacy from a whole range of voices uh, across Vancouver and the Lower Mainland pushing for the city of Vancouver to become a living wage employer. Um, The living wage, as you said, is calculated as a pretty bare bones calculation of what it costs for a two parent family with two children, which which was used as the example because it's the most common family unit in BC. Um, What what two people working full-time would need to earn in order to be able to raise a family in Metro Vancouver. Um, it, it really doesn't include many extras or perks. It's, it's a very basic calculation um, of food and housing costs, transportation, childcare. Um, it, it is even harder if you're a single parent raising kids, of course. So uh, that's how the calculation was done. The Living Wage for Families campaign updates it regularly because, of course, costs change. So, for instance, the investments that the provincial government and federal government have put into child care uh, and the reduction in child care costs for many, many families have made a difference. Uh, that results in a, a lower wage needed to be able to live in Vancouver um, on uh, on the flip side, the increasing cost of housing sees the living wage go up. And in this year, inflation and the increasing cost of almost everything has seen a rise in the living wage. So it's um, it, it's based on a calculation of what it actually costs to live here. So 17% uh, is how much it's gone up, uh, I would presume, since 2017. 24 bucks an hour is not a lot. Um, that basic uh, calculation that everybody uses uh, in your head, it's not always accurate, but uh, you take the hourly wage, you double it, 24 doubled is 48, put uh, three zeros after, about 48 grand a year. You can do that with almost any hourly wage for a full-time job. Um, so that's not a lot, 48 grand, maybe 50 grand a year around that for living in Vancouver. What happened behind closed doors um, with the majority on council? What was the move? What was the thinking from uh, your councilmates? Not your civic party, but your councilmates. So because it was an in-camera meeting, I can't speak to uh, any of what the discussion is or what other people's votes were. I can say that I have been a longtime supporter of and advocate of the living wage, and I voted against the city deciding to step back from its living wage commitments. 
I think there's a fundamental principle here um, that is really important, and it is that people who work for the city of Vancouver should be able to afford to live in the city of Vancouver to call Vancouver home. Um, The people who are most impacted in any organization uh, that is a living wage employer, uh, I won't speak specifically to the city, but where the living wage tends to have the most impact is on, of course, the lowest wage employees and often contract employees. So uh, often it's security workers um, and it's janitorial and cleaning staff. And, and contractors, I, it's not just the employees, but the contractors that come yeah. in, uh, contracted yeah. through the city, right? Well, and, and specifically the lowest wage of contractors. Um, and and I think it's important that, that folks who do that important work um, in the city and for the city belong in Vancouver and and should be able to call Vancouver home. You know, you may not have uh, entire insight into this, but why in hell was this decision made behind closed doors? So there are specific rules that outline what at the city is uh, an uh, an in-camera uh, discussion and decision and what isn't, and, and those decisions are made by the city's legal team, certainly not by council itself. It is Bruce Claggett in for Jill. Thanks for being with us as we get ready to head into the weekend. Let's talk a little bit about trust and integrity in our electoral process, the fundamentals of even our democracy as we take a look at things like, oh, the headlines nationally of Chinese interference in Canadian elections. That's playing out in Ottawa, and we're getting more stories all the time of uh, how much the Prime Minister may or may not have known about uh, Chinese interference. Well, the B.C. government has uh, introduced its own bill this week to try to tackle the rise of either election disinformation that has been happening or uh, the disinformation that could happen in the future. Now, the legislation, if it does pass would make it illegal to deliberately and knowingly make false statements about elections and about the candidates. Well, to talk more about this uh, is Rob Shaw from Czech TV, who has written in Business in Vancouver on this, and it's a great article, great depth on this subject. Rob, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. What is the idea behind this legislation? Uh, Where is this coming from? Well, you know, it's not something that the NDP government in power right now just sort of thought up out of the blue. It actually comes from the chief electoral officer, who's our independent watchdog of elections at Elections BC. And he has written a couple of reports the last few years on the rise of disinformation in elections worldwide. Uh, The ability of misleading campaigns to influence election outcomes uh, by shadowy figures and actors and the various ways that that is happening now online and through sophisticated means, social media bots, that type of thing. Uh, And so he had mentioned, uh, you know, the Brexit referendum and all sorts of other sort of examples internationally. And he'd recommended a number of changes to legislators and not all of them, but uh, many of them are in this bill that the NDP has brought down this week from the attorney general. And, You know, I think it's the kind of thing we're going to be talking about next year 
with uh, the 2024 election campaign in British Columbia, and it will potentially have kind of, I think, hopefully a positive impact on some of the discourse that is out there during election time. Oh, this is an issue that's not going away. Just so we understand it before we get into the legislation and possible penalties uh, if we break this, uh, these rules, these new rules. Um, let's uh, flow chart this out with a hypothetical. Um, the worst case scenario, what the legislation is aimed at, how would it start? Uh, and let's just call it a foreign power or an outside mm-hmm. power. How would they end up influencing uh, a politician or the process? How would that, in fact, play out in their hopes to uh, changing a result? What is the flow there? Well, there's so many different ways that that could happen these days with social media and different platforms. But essentially what this legislation is contemplating is uh, the ability for the government to demand of its that companies including the big tech companies, take down misleading uh, information within 24 hours or face enormous fines uh, daily. And we're talking about uh, several different things here. So one is what the legislation views as objective biographical information about candidates. So, uh, you know, think of the Barack Obama debate in the United States where his birth certificate was questioned and whether he was uh, even uh, an American uh, and uh, eligible to run for president. Uh, so those kind of biographical details, specifically, it, you know, it mentions your citizenship, your place of birth, uh, your education, your association in any type of group. So uh, incorrectly, you know, uh, saying that someone is a member of a hate group, for example, uh, are all kind of uh, scenarios that the government has, has laid out with this type of legislation. And then also objective facts that are true about the election process itself. You, you can't deceive people under this legislation by telling, for example, them uh, to go to a polling station that doesn't exist on the wrong day at the wrong time to try and swing a whole bunch of people away from losing their ability to vote and thereby influencing the outcome of an election there. So it, it sets those out, but then it also sets out demands that the companies take this information down. Now, can government make Facebook and Google and WeChat and all these different uh, companies do that? I think there's an open question there about the, the ability of a small, you know, sub-provincial government uh, the, like this to, to do that. But um, it is envisioned in this legislation that that's what would happen. I guess, Rob, it comes down to how long is it going to be up before it even gets discovered? And as you know, people see a tweet or uh, see some information on social media and it's usually a social media of their choice, or they take that and take it as fact. And if they mm-hmm. hear it enough times, they end up uh, going on with it, and it could influence others. I guess that's the whole belief behind this. I say that uh, knowing that there was a conversation I came across uh, just two days ago where uh, just casually somebody was uh, talking to somebody else, but I was there, and they're mentioning that Justin Trudeau on the federal uh, scene, Justin Trudeau, no academic background. In fact, he was just a drama teacher. Mm. And I thought, well, okay, let's let's hold. Bruce, don't get involved in this. And I thought, uh, but you know me, I, I just opened my mouth <laughs> and I got involved. And I said, you know what? Politics aside, let's let's just talk about this. Um, the guy's got two university degrees. Uh, one of them being an education degree and a undergraduate degree in geography. Uh, 
they're like, what? What are you talking about? And it reminded me that uh, even casually, and there's nothing illegal there, but casually you could just spread misinformation. And it ends up being the narrative that is shared so many times. Um, are we ever going to be able to control that, do you think, Rob? No. I mean, look, the, this was my question to the Attorney General this week is, well, what if you just make a mistake? You're reading something, the Wikipedia page is wrong, or or you're passing on partial information or whatever. The bill is not designed to go after sort of individual folks who make a mistake in describing something. It's designed to go after knowing and deliberate misinformation. So campaigns by third-party groups, campaigns by unknown groups, uh, multiple social media bots or repeated posts or, you know, uh, advertising that's done illegally um, that deliberately spread a false a bit of information about someone that they're part of a group that they are that they you know aren't actually a doctor that they you know very specific things um and that's where it's intended to be you're right that it's so hard with the information flow these days to know the totality of what you're talking about and things you know your your family is sharing stuff on facebook that's that's that's, that's wrong and people are are passing around information that's wrong it's not designed to hit people it's designed to try to go to the source and again has anyone figured that out, uh, how to do that effectively? No. Is the B.C. government going to figure that out on its own? No. But it set the tools to give the, the elections B.C. and the chief electoral officer the power to do that when and if we, we sort of get a better handle on how we limit tweets and Facebook posts and TikTok videos and stuff that are wrong. Uh, and, and setting up the watchdog to be in a position to do that in the future, uh, however he or she, she sees fit. And I, I think that's the enabling part of this. You know, it's interesting. Uh, if you go and libel or slander a company and uh, make false statements about them, you go through the uh, civil system. And uh, and we're seeing more and more cases of that playing out where there are court cases uh, and judgments coming down with BC companies that have come out uh, on the winning side of somebody saying something absolutely false about them. But we mm-hmm. don't see that when it comes to people. And I'm not even talking politicians. But uh, is this because there is no ability, basically, to, uh, to go after people when it comes to uh, elections in, in the civil courts? No, no, for sure there is. You can libel someone, you can, uh, absolutely. But the problem is that it takes time uh, and legal resources and money to uh, you know, obtain even interim court rulings and junctions to have information taken down. Election campaigns are very prescriptive, you know, they're occurring for a month. Uh, and so what I think this does is whether or not you want to proceed with a libel lawsuit, uh, you can take it to the chief electoral officer and he or she can issue that order for a company, which would get fined $50,000 a day for every day after 24 hours, they leave up the information and have it removed much more quickly and effectively than through libel or defamation. And again, you know, we also have uh, anti uh, kind of slap lawsuit legislation in BC that was brought in where it's supposed to um, discourage or prevent someone with very wealthy pockets from just kind of going after you when you're stating the truth uh, with frivolous lawsuits that run you out in court. So, you know, that part of it as well is an interesting wrinkle. And, but, but elections move so quickly that this allows, I think, the elections BC to move as quickly, uh, quite separate from whether you want to sue someone for, for libel. Well, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out and if we see any uh, 
action with this uh, when it comes up to election time in uh, in the province. By the way, Rob, does this also cover uh, civic elections or is it just for the provincial ones? I believe it's just for the provincial ones. However, that's actually a pretty good question. It was sort of envisioned yesterday as uh, being in place for the next provincial election. Yeah. That will certainly be our first test, but um, I imagine if it works well, you could see that expanded, but it's a, it's a good question. And, you know, this bill has a bunch of other things in it, too, and, and people can check out the, the column because there's some mail-in ballot changes. A lot of people are mailing in ballots these days, and uh, this bill makes it slightly easier to do that uh, in the future. So there's a fair bit that's going to come up for debate in the legislature, and, and we'll stay on top of that as well. Thanks, Rob. It's a good read, uh, Glacier Media and uh, Business in Vancouver. Uh, Rob's article on this uh, and its title, BC Disinformation Bill, makes sense. Will it help? Rob, thanks so much for your time. Okay, take care. Thank you for being with us. Bruce Claggett in for Jill Bennett. And a tough one for some people trying to get into the B.C. interior this afternoon. As you may have heard in the news, the Coquihalla Highway is closed right now in both directions. But that's the major of the three routes, the biggest of the three routes to get into the interior. A complete closure of the Coquihalla between merit and hope and that's because according to drive bc because of heavy congestion and extreme winter weather the alternatives there being the fraser canyon on highway one and of course the hope princeton but that could add hours to an already difficult commute a new poll is out from research co And it shows, among other things, that neither of the two main leaders of the federal parties, the two biggest federal parties, the ones with a chance of winning government, are gaining any ground when it comes to managing the economy. One of the other findings, though, is that there is this almost neck-and-neck tie. Well, it is. It's a virtual neck-and-neck tie. 34% of decided voters, according to Research Co., would vote Liberal if an election were held tomorrow. 33% would vote Conservative. Let's unpack some of these and bring in Mario Conseco, the president of Research Co. Mario, always a pleasure to talk to you. Happy weekend ahead, and thanks for joining us right now. It's my pleasure, Bruce. Great to chat with you. Now, let's take a look at uh, uh, the movement uh, with the Liberals and the Conservatives. Uh, Justin Trudeau now in uh, a neck-and-neck tie when it comes to uh, where he stands with the Conservatives. Is this a surprise, or what trend do we see? Well, this is a big change from what we saw back in October when the Conservatives had a significant lead at the national level, partly because they were doing so well in Ontario. This month, uh, the Liberals are up by seven points in Ontario, so that brings them within 34% at the national level, still dominating in their usual strongholds of Atlantic Canada and Quebec. And the Conservatives gaining in Alberta, where they don't really need the numbers. Uh, They're at 58%. uh, There's no point in winning those seats by 20 or 30 points, but also ahead in Saskatchewan and Manitoba and in British Columbia. So it's almost as if we're redoing the 2021 election. Uh, The numbers really haven't changed that much. This would probably give us another liberal minority. And it certainly hasn't been an easy time for the Conservatives to try to maintain that momentum. They were doing very well in October. Now they're back into what is essentially a statistical tie with the Liberals. 
I'm looking at the uh, breakdown of the numbers, and as you say, it really doesn't matter if you hit him strong and hard in Alberta and you continue to win, win, win with a really big uh, gap. Uh, when it comes down to it, it's all about seats, isn't it? Exactly, and this is where there needs to be some change in order for either of the two parties to gain some traction as far as the seat counts are concerned. Uh, we don't see the Bloc Quebecois climbing the charts in Quebec, so the Liberal seats tend to be a little bit safer. The Conservatives are doing better this month in Quebec than they did before, but not enough to win some of those seats. Uh, Ontario is the key because we see some of those fluctuations that could really lead to changes of 20 or 25 seats going to one party or the other. And this is ultimately what the Liberals need to to try to do. They're still holding on to some of their urban strongholds, particularly here in BC. Uh, But we've always seen the Conservatives dominating in BC. In every federal election in this century, with the exception of 2015, the Conservatives or the Canadian Alliance have finished in first place here. So it's not a surprise to see them at 38% right now. It's a return to the usual swing of things when it comes to the way BC votes federally. Mario, let's take a look at some of the uh, issues and see which ones are gaining any sort of traction with one party or the other. The first one that comes to mind is uh, election interference. Um, headlines and the big headlines in the Globe and Mail uh, almost, what, three or four days in a row. Consecutive stories uh, about uh, what we knew, what the prime minister knew uh, going back to and when about uh, election interference. When it comes to voters, does this mean anything? Well, it's not moving at this stage. You know, we were in field from February 25 to February 27. So we were still in the early stages of what was coming out related to foreign interference. And we see accountability and leadership as the number one issue for only 4% of Canadians. There's been other moments when the crisis is bigger, when the scandal that the government is facing is more significant, when these numbers trend upwards. Uh, I remember in the early stages of the HST discussions with Gordon Campbell, accountability and leadership was 20% when it came to British Columbians. So I think it's a matter of time. If this continues, if the scandal continues to percolate, then maybe we'll see these numbers dancing a little bit more. But at this particular stage, people are more concerned with the economy and jobs, healthcare and housing. The other one is, uh, of course, the economy. And I know that can break down into different different areas, I guess, when we talk about the economy, be it interest rates, uh, inflation, or uh, just the prospects for jobs uh, and uh, whether we're still in that job surplus or not. But I'm seeing that neither of the leaders are gaining any ground when it comes to the economy. Now, I'm also feeling and maybe it's uh, just being a little too close to the news, that there are so many factors, at least for British Columbians, where we're just being hit time and time and time again with one more expense after another, be it taxes, be it uh, inflation, be it uh, uh, the cost of renewing a mortgage. Um, And I'm not seeing in these numbers uh, Justin Trudeau taking much of a hit. Am I right? Yes, what we see is uh, the higher concern about economy and jobs, uh, particularly from the younger crowd. Uh, Canadians aged 18 to 34, this is the number one issue for them at 33%. So it's more of a concern with those who are starting out, who are trying to find the next job, and who are worried about their economic prospects. 
But the reality is we've had four months of consistent attacks from the conservatives talking about inflation, branding it as just inflation, and the numbers aren't really moving for either of them. We see 41% of Canadians who say they would be comfortable with Pierre Paulier being in charge of the Canadian economy, and 44% who feel the same way about Justin Trudeau. So the fluctuation since October is just one point. It hasn't really made a dent as far as trying to connect and to sell the idea that if you change the, the, the federal government, the situation would be better as far as finances for all Canadians. So it's been a, a lengthy campaign, but it's not something that is moving voters right now either away from the Liberals or to the Conservative fold. Okay, before we go to calls, uh, let's talk a little bit about the NDP and Jugbeat Singh. What can he take out from uh, what we see in this uh, in this latest poll? Well, it's such a complicated issue for the NDP because we consistently see Jagmeet Singh as the most well-liked leader. 49% of Canadians are happy with what he's doing in, in, in the way he's leading the NDP. Uh, but the biggest problem is it's not really resulting in a higher level of support when it comes to voting. There are 18% nationally, a little bit higher with the 18 to 34 crowd at 24%. Their best province is British Columbia at 28%, which is still 10 points behind the federal conservatives. So this has been consistent, in, in, especially when we go back to the 2021 election. A lot of people who like Jagmeet Singh, who like him as a leader, but who can't see themselves voting for the NDP if an election were to happen tomorrow. Bruce Clankett in for Jill Bennett. We have Mario Canseco, president of Research Co., talking about this latest poll showing liberals and conservatives neck and neck in Canada. And if an election were held tomorrow, 34% of decided voters would vote liberal, 33% would vote conservative. By the way, the NDP at 18%. Mario's with me, but let's go right to the calls. Your calls at 604 280 9898-604-280-9898 in South Surrey, Paul. Paul, what's on your mind? Well, uh, undoubtedly, I would vote conservative. I have for many elections, and I think the reasoning is if you look at the current liberal government and how they, they govern, it's it's a trend that's that's common within that party, and it's conquer and divide. And they don't do anything necessarily for the betterment of the country. If you look back towards Pierre Elliott Trudeau and how he governed, gave his finger to the West, uh, that's, that's quite common in the Liberal Party. So, Paul, so, you would describe yourself as a diehard conservative. Diehard? No, I, not diehard, because I, I don't like that term. So I'm, I'm a conservative-thinking person. I'm socially uh, liberal, you might say. I'm more of a... Um, you know, a libertarian. Okay, what would it take for you to vote liberal, to move your vote? Well, responsible governance. Responsible governance and the the true uh, governance of the entire country, not a conquer and divide policy. You know, in the Harper years, many people don't like Harper. Yeah, he was a little boring, but he was a policy wonk. He remains a policy wonk. He left office. And he led us through the 08 recession, which, you know, de- devastated most of the planet. 
and we came out of it with uh, with a, t- a one billion dollar surplus. Okay, and I appreciate the remember, call, Paul, and uh, I know where you're going with that. But I want to take this right to uh, Mario because I think there is an interesting point I'm trying to get at, and that is people that have voted conservative for years. Are we seeing anything that would move them over to the liberals, or is it more the other way? Um, Mario, are you seeing any shifts or any great shifts one way or the other? It's nothing very dramatic. When we go back to the behavior of voters in 2021, we have 7% of liberal voters who would vote conservative now, and we have 3% of conservative voters who would vote liberal now. So it's definitely more happening from the liberals uh, losing some of their votes. Uh, That being said, they're holding on to 84% of their support. This is why they're at the fairly same level that they had back in 2021. Uh, but I think part of the, the the essence of reconnecting is going to be how do you sell the idea of a different country? I think that has been one of the difficulties that they had over the last two campaigns, uh, not really coalescing around Andrew Scheer or around Erin O'Toole and selling a vision of what the country could be. There was a moment in 2021 when O'Toole connected very well, particularly on foreign affairs, and it looked like change was at hand, and it sort of fizzled out at the end. So essentially what they need to do if they want to get back in government is develop this idea of what the nation would look like if they were in charge. Okay, also in Surrey, Marco. Marco, if an election were held tomorrow, they always say tomorrow, not today. But if it were held tomorrow, uh, how would you vote? You know, I have voted for both the Liberals and the Conservatives in the past, and I would vote for the Liberals simply because the Conservative leader is just hes too far to the right. You know, he supported the truckers. He talked about Bitcoin as a policy. And I agree with what your guests have to say about O'Toole. Actually, I think they had the best shot of winning with him and doing it again. Obviously, he's not the leader anymore because he was moderate and he took moderate positions. And right now, Polyev is going, you know, hard to the right, appealing to his base. They just don't have the numbers to win when you add up the liberals and the NDP. And if they don't, if they don't broaden their horizons, if they don't broaden the demographic group that they're trying to get, they can't form a majority. They have, they're not really pulling the best out east. I appreciate that, Marco in Syria. Mario, he makes a very good point, and that is how to grow the base. Uh, Can you grow the base by moving uh, one way to the far right or further right? Or do you have to really kind of reach out? What is... uh, What are you finding in the numbers? Well, if we look at the way in which the liberals got their first majority, I guess the only majority of the Justin Trudeau time in 2015, it was essentially by talking to urban voters who had voted conservative in the past. There were seats in Metro Vancouver, seats in the 905 region in Toronto and in the 416 region, sorry, 905 in Ontario and also 416, which is essentially Toronto. Uh, where the conservatives lost some of those seats to the liberals. And I think part of the essence here is going to be to reconnect with the urban areas. What we have is a conservative party that does very well in parts that are not particularly populated. Because of the way the system operates, you need to be able to break through in the urban areas. And I think this is what they will try to do when the election happens, try to get some of those seats, particularly Surrey, to a lesser extent in the 905, that could be the difference between forming the government or not. It's more an urban-rural divide right now when it comes to politics than it is about policy itself. Appreciate that, Marco in Surrey. Very quickly, let's squeeze in Stuart in New Westminster. 
where would you vote? Or how would you well, vote? Yeah, I think uh, I'm generally a, a center, slightly right of center voter. And uh, I took a break from voting conservative a few years ago. And certainly in the last election, I just, the leaders didn't really excite me. And I was willing to give Trudeau a, a go. But with this latest uh, issue with Chinese influence in uh, elections, uh, I just, I can't do it anymore. I think Trudeau seems to take his, his direction from Liberal Party insiders uh, in, in, in backroom uh, meetings and uh, takes the nod from them. I can't do it anymore. So I'm willing to uh, to try and uh, <laughs> give Polly a, a go. You know, Stuart, I, I hear you voter. on that. And this is the one where I opened up with a question for Mario. And, uh, and I'm really surprised that that hasn't been a bigger change and uh, detriment to Justin Trudeau in the numbers when it comes to the political interference. Appreciate the call, uh, Stuart. And uh, Mario Canseco, appreciate your time, president of Research Co., as always. Bruce Claggett in for Jill Bennett. And after a pretty hard work week, let's lighten up a little bit and talk about one of my favorite topics, food, where to eat, where to dine, where to have a bottle of red, a bottle of white, and uh, kind of relax and enjoy the fruits of our labors. Uh, when we're talking about Vancouver restaurants, who better than to to bring in? Who better than Richard Wallach, who is the editor and publisher of VancouverFoodster.com? Richard, uh, thanks for being with us. You're welcome. So, you know, we everybody always talks about the new restaurants. Like, what, what is a new restaurant? What is a new restaurant? All the time I hear this. And then I think, you know what? There are other restaurants that have been around for a long time. Yeah. A lot, a lot of them have survived the pandemic, which is incredible. And we should talk about some of the ones that have been around for a while. That, well, um, and let's start, just, Richard, with that first one I know that you're going to get to has been around for a dozen years, for 12 years. Yeah, Love It Twice. You know, it's in Gastown and... They are just walking it, you know. You know, sometimes people forget about restaurants. They go, okay, they they're new. They're, they've been around for a while. Let's let's skip it. But don't skip this one because I ate there recently, and they are just on fire. Just so creative, and they've just elevated what they've been doing for many many years. And I think you know they said that of course the pandemic was difficult, but they got through it, and now it's just about creating and welcoming the diners back. So. One thing I love there that they're actually creating a lot of zero-proof cocktails now on their bar menu. Um, they've always been known for their cocktails, and now people, of course, are asking for more zero-proof, and that's what they're creating. So zero-proof meaning uh, like non-alcoholic for the exactly, uninitiated. Exactly. So you can have these creative cocktails with non-alcoholic spirits, and really, like you're not going to know that much of a difference. Okay, uh, that's a good one to try out and uh, always having a nice, innovative cocktail. Um, I like to mix my own cocktails at home, but I can never get that nice balance that a really good mixologist can. So that's right, good to know. Uh, yeah. Let's go on to this other one, Coast Restaurant, being around for 20 years. Yeah, so, you know, people forget about this. I mean, you know, Global Group has several restaurants around the city, and a lot of people are ordering from them, that kind of thing. But Coast is one of them that they've actually had in their for quite a long time now. They've just celebrated 20 years this year. They renovated the entire restaurant a couple months ago, and it's beautiful. They've done a great job. The same thing, the, uh, the chef is doing lots of new items, new um, interactive experiences at the table. I had a, a Dover sole that was uh, she um, carved table side by the server. So those things, kinds of things are always kind of fun, and they get, you know, the customer gets excited 
brings out the camera, starts taking pics and, uh, and video and that kind of thing. So it's uh, keeping people entertained, which is really nice to see. I still like taking pictures when I spend uh, money on a good meal. I know it's kind of, uh, you know, people have different opinions about, oh, yeah, taking pictures of your meal, posting them <laughs> on uh, social media. But, boy, you know, there's a lot that goes into that. Why not celebrate with a good pic? Exactly. Uh, exactly. Now, speaking about fish, uh, fish works. I, I'm yeah. not familiar with fish works. Tell me about it. So- they're in North Vancouver. They're on Lonsdale Avenue, and they've also been around quite a long time now. You know, it's an like owner, independent restaurant, owner-operated, owner-chef, and he's also been just doing incredible work over the years. And, of course, pandemic was difficult for them, but they got through it. And they just got, I mean, I just, I ate there right after Dine, or actually right before the Dine Out Festival, and they were full. It was like a Thursday night. It was before Dine Out, and, and the restaurant was 100% full. I'm like, wow, this is amazing. Like, this just this testament to them. For keeping it going they've got a, a brand new menu just came out today uh for springtime although you can't quite tell it's spring yet but for spring they've got a new menu and a really delicious octopus dish that i tried when i was there and just it's great to see i mean what they're doing they have a new south american um sous chef so they're doing a lot of south american flavors to their dishes so a lot going on you find them right up on lonsdale not far from the key so you can take the sea bus over or, or drive over I find uh, when you cook octopus, you really have to know what you're doing to make it not rubbery. Exactly. Because <laughs> it can come out the wrong way. Yeah, so there's sure. a good place, and you've discovered a great one, I guess. Uh, Sansui Wa. Sansui Wa. 35 years. Yeah, so this is a Chinese restaurant. It's up on uh, Main Street in the kind of Riley Park neighborhood there. 35 years is a long time for any restaurant around Vancouver, but they've just done a really good job. And same thing, you know, through the pandemic, they were operating and, you know, everybody's wearing masks and they're kind of all kind of still wearing masks in there, but um, they've just done a great job. So you go for dim sum in the morning or you go for dinner at night. But every time I've been there and I've been there a couple of times lately, it's full all the time. So you like, like, obviously the service is key there. They know what they're doing. Um, People come for quality food and experiences. So I think uh, 35 years, long time for them. I mean, talking sure. with Richard Wallach, editor, publisher of VancouverFoodster.com. Now, Richard, uh, I'm familiar with uh, downtown Langley and some of the restaurants around there. And I've mentioned this uh, to my family. Boy, it's really changed in the last few years with lots of different um, nationalities being represented in downtown Langley. Really kind of a foodie place. And um, that's just recently. But there is one, and it's just a block off Fraser Highway across from Douglas Park, and it's a Thai restaurant. Yeah, it's called Banchok D, and they're a bit over 10 years now, I think maybe 11 years or so. And same thing there, you know, family run, uh, chef, owner, just trying to keep things going. I know pandemic was, of course, difficult for them, but they survived with a lot of takeout, a lot of deliveries to people in the neighborhood. But now, same thing, like, Diners are coming back in droves, and it's a very good restaurant. Every time I'm out there, I'm, I'm dining at Banchok. So, Thai, you know, authentic Thai restaurant, Thai dishes. Uh, they actually opened another one a few years ago out in Maple Ridge. But the one in Langley is, is my like, kind of go-to, more of authentic experience. And uh, it's great to see because, you, as you mentioned, there are actually a lot of new restaurants opening in that area, and we'll talk about that in the months to come. But for, for now, you know, celebrating the ones that have been around for a long time, that's a great one to try. Yeah, always busy. It's a neat restaurant, a neat space, and uh, you can see a good mix of people dining in and taking out there. Um, 
Here's one, Left Barn Grill, 17 years. Yeah, so Cole Harbor, I mean, you know, that's, that's been a, a spot people have been dying, going to for a long time, and everybody's been known, they've always been known about their martinis, people go for the martinis at the bar, a lot of their cocktail drinks, but they've got a lot of uh, great chef, a lot of great dishes there. Chef Chris has been there for the past year and creating a lot of new dishes there and brunch and, and that kind of thing. So it's not just a tourist spot anymore. It's locals are going out and enjoying it. They've got a great view of the harbor and Stanley Park. So you can you know go there for brunch, but you can also go there for dinner during the week as well. Let's talk about pizza. Yeah, so Via Tavere has been around a long time now. So like over ten years, and like that's another one. They're like the ones that one of the ones that started the Neapolitan um, trend, I guess, around Vancouver. They were one of the first to do that style of pizza before Nickley did it, and then now, of course, there's a whole bunch more. But Via Tavere has got the same thing: like family operation. The families in there are working every day, and they just keep it going. And, and same thing through the pandemic. I remember they had a they had a window open up, and people would go by and they place their order and they pick up their food from the window during the pandemic but uh now of course everybody's dining in and uh, they've got an outside patio as well but uh it's busy all the time so it's just great to see you know these restaurants that are have been able to keep it going for so long and and they're still going strong uh, richard what type of pizza are they i know there are so many different types from uh the wood-fired uh, pizza to chicago style and everything what do they yeah, do so this is neapolitan style so this is using the type of uh, zero zero flour and, and kind of keeping it very authentic, margarita, salsia, the sausage, rapini pizza. You can have a white, a white sauce or a red sauce. Very, very traditional. They also do some pasta dishes now and some desserts as well. Okay, two more we want to talk about, one being Jam Jar. So Jam Jar, people know. I mean, they have several locations around the city now. Uh, but they did start a bunch of years ago on Commercial Drive, and they're still going strong on Commercial Drive. Um, during the pandemic, though, they actually opened up one in Seashelt. So people may not be aware of that. If you go over to the Sunshine Coast, you will now find a jam jar. Um, they also moved their commissary there. The owner actually moved up there himself. And then they are, he commutes to the city once a week. But uh, they have a great restaurant there. So if you're heading over there, you can try jam jar there. But uh, they have multiple locations around the city now. But really, the, the first one was Commercial Drive. And that one is still going strong for Lebanese, for casual eats and um, car- great cocktails there as Lebanese. well. Lebanese. Yeah, wow. Um, now, here's a classic, and uh, most of us are very familiar with the name, uh, 40 Years Plus, the yeah. Shaughnessy Restaurant. <laughs> Shaughnessy Restaurant at Van Dusen Gardens is actually still run by the same owner, same family, 40 years, which is very impressive to see the same owner ownership for any restaurant, because sometimes restaurants will change hands, but this one has not. So the same owner since day one running it, and I think just, same thing like it's just it's very busy uh, we've got chef matt philip in there he's been there about five years now he's really changed things up I, he told me through the pandemic was a little hard but now they're doing a lot they're growing some herbs at van Dusen gardens they're trying to do as much local as possible uh, and um, so i think a lot of locals appreciate that of course it's busy at certain times because when there's van Dusen holiday lights on when there's activities at van Dusen going on then the restaurant becomes packed but if you want a nice meal, you know, just go during the week, go for lunch during the week, go for dinner during the week when it's not kind of a celebratory season and you can get to enjoy some great food. Richard, a great list indeed. And uh, we went through so many of them. I know we've made a lot of people hungry and they'll want to come back and review some of the names. Where can they go if uh, if the name went by so quickly? How can they find these out? I think uh, VancouverFoodStore.com or send me a message on uh 
Ben Futsier on Instagram. You can just DM me on uh, Ben Futsier on Instagram, and I'm happy to share that with them. Van Foodster. Van, Van Foodster on Instagram. VancouverFoodster.com for the website. Richard, thanks so much, and uh, happy eating ahead this weekend. Yeah, thank you. You too as well.